Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, your host for the Nature Institute podcast in Dialogue with Nature. At the Institute, we see science as a participatory process through which we work to develop dynamic and flexible thinking that can perceive the rich complexity and wholeness of the world. In today's episode, I'll be in dialogue with Craig Holdridge, discussing his book, Thinking Like a Plant, A Living Science for Life. Craig is the co-founder of the Nature Institute and has been studying, writing, and teaching biology and the philosophy of science for over 30 years. Craig, let's start with your first encounters with plants. What can you remember? What's the earliest age at which you have a strong memory of encountering plants? And what was that like? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I was not a, a child who was going out and picking plants and bringing them back in as bouquets for my mother or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I played outside a lot in Colorado where I grew up. And the plants I have most vividly in memory are on the one hand, the the cactuses that you did not want to step on or sit on when you were roaming through the hillsides, the poison ivy that you had to avoid. That's really truly what comes to my mind mostly as a child, just the landscape of the foothills, which was, you know, kind of grassland, and then the moving into the, the brush, and then into the ponderosa pine forest where we could play, and the smell, this wonderful smell of the pine trees when it's sunny and warm, this aromatic smell, those are kind of the memories. So I have a more like dreamy relation to plants as a boy. Definitely not one where it was conscious or was where I was interested in knowing what's this or what's that or what's that. And then at what point did it shift? Uh, it actually shifted. You could say that the focus towards plants shifted when I got to know Jochen Bokemur, who became the teacher of mine later on, but he was he gave a course at Emerson College, which I participated in, and it was my junior year abroad. And he took us out to plants. And I was already interested in this Gertian phenomenological method, but he was one of the first people doing it. Right? And he brought us out to plants. And that struck me as there's being something there, right? There is something there without it really then, you know, saying, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. Although I knew then the Gertian approach is what I wanted to do with my life. I was about 22, and that was clear. And then, you know, I finished my studies, went in the States, went back to Europe. And then I decided to do a year-long program that was directed by Bokumru in Gertian Phenomenological Science. And that's where I really got into plants, through him. And that was a, a conscious, and it was like a world opening up, because I'd never really consciously paid attention in that sense to nature. I thought a lot about nature. I thought a lot about knowing. And now I saw, aha, there's a way to know that seems secure and real and now it's a matter of doing it. And so that was an introduction to the doing through Bokamurul and the other teachers in that course, the field trips we took, the independent project that I did that was related to plants, the place observations that we did all year long. So all of that, I really, that's where it took off. 
something happened because when anyone is with you now, it's clear not only do you have a great intimacy with plants and knowledge, but you also have a great affection. There's a caringness that comes through when you're with the plants. So something shifted that that became a way of being with the plant. And then also I want to hear more about what drew you when you say the Gertian approach. There's something in that that there was already enough in it that you were willing to follow it and sign up for this course for a year, right? Of intensive study. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll start with the first. And if I forget mm. the second, you mm-hmm. might be. I'd focused on philosophy and studied some science before I went to Emerson College. And I went to Emerson College because of my interest in Steiner's epistemology, which seemed to me as someone who was studying philosophy, it showed a way that one could actually connect with the world. I mean, this was my problem as a young man, as a teenager already. The world seemed pretty meaningless. I didn't know how to find meaning, but I thought there must be a way. And so, you know, I did lots of reading, you know, and and philosophers helped me, Aristotle and Plato, especially, I I would say those two, actually. And then reading Steiner, Owen Barfield, where then I saw, uh aha, there's a way of knowing where we can actually see knowing as a way of participating in the world. And that I need to be very conscious of that process, which I liked to do, because I was a kind of a chronic doubter and skeptic about things so that this was something that in a way I could say, I'm in a process where I don't need to doubt all the time, I can engage. And so that was more a search and that took me to Emerson College and that helped the the work there. But then it was this, what I got to know there, the so-called Goethean approach, going back to Goethe, the German poet and scientist, you know, who died in the 1832, going back to his work where I discovered, you know, that's where Steiner based his epistemology on, and I started reading more in that direction. This is the way I want to go, because it, I had the feeling if, if I stay just with philosophy, which was I was thinking of, maybe I'll go get a master's degree in, in, in philosophy. I'll stay in my head. I won't, I'll be always thinking about things in a little bit way separate from the world. I didn't want the separateness from the world. I was someone who was very engaged in the concerns around the environmental movement. What are we doing with the planet? All of those things already as a high school student. And so I said, I need to be able to connect with the world in a way that's healthy and in a way that maybe in the long run can bring more health to the human relation to the planet that we can do something better on earth. That all arose in, you know, in these a few years. And then when I had this opportunity to learn from, I'll say a master in the field, Johann Bokemru, then I guess it was in a way through his example that began to develop where I just increasingly gained a relation to what I was perceiving in plants so that they spoke more. They were interesting for me, the colors, the forms, where they were growing. I mean, that was one of Bokemu's big things at that time, you know, always looking at context. How does a plant reveal through what it is, its larger context? And that really interested me. So it got me to looking at tree forms and and where this particular species is growing in the forest. It's growing here, but it's not growing there. What's going on? 
not in terms of cause and effect, but in terms of what's revealing itself there. So that just developed and continued to develop as long as I continued to engage with plants. And the love of plants at what, was was there some day, was there some year, some point when you consciously realized, wow, I really have shifted my relationship to plants. It was in that year, right? Mm -hmm. It was in this, this, this year of 1979 into 1980, where that shifted. It was during that time, clearly. I mean, because that was where every two weeks we went on an excursion to all these really neat places in, in Switzerland. And just seeing all these different kinds of plants, all these different habitats, landscapes. And it just became then really interesting for me. And from then on, when I then became a teacher and I couldn't do so much plant work actually with large classes in a school and there wasn't so much but what did I do in my vacations we went into the Alps and hiked and I loved plants you know Mm -hmm. looking at plants and that never stopped but it really yeah it started during that year that's all I can say so one of the things I've learned from you is to really pay attention to the organism and how it expresses itself. And when the organism Craig Holdridge gets excited once in a while, you hear this, really, I really loved plants. And so <laughs> that's how I know we're on to something that he's excited about when we get there, really. And there's something about that expressiveness that all organisms have or are capable of once we pay attention. And I think that's one of the joys of this way of uh, as you said, that knowing becomes participatory. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, and it's an interesting thing. I just took a walk on the weekend in the snow covered landscape with Henrika, my wife, and in the little valley that's just five minutes from our home that we know very well, but we hadn't been down there quite in quite a while. And a couple trees caught my attention, ones I hadn't paid attention to before, sycamore trees. And I just could, again, see there's this moment when it's, and it's not always the case, where something comes alive, where you look at, oh, look at that little one. Look at that somewhat bigger one that's growing. It doesn't have any leaves, right? It's a deciduous tree. It has kind of the form of a Christmas tree. And maybe it's 10 years old, I don't know, something, or maybe 20, but probably not more than that. And then there are next to it, these really big trees that are who knows, 100 years old. And then there are a number of them, and they all have a very individual form. And there's something about coming from a a form that was more archetypally young, I'll put it that way, as a kind of a young stage of a tree, which I've seen in other places. But at this moment, it was like, oh, they do that. And then looking at the other ones, and then you see, oh my goodness, there's something really happens in the forming that's beautiful, but is at the same time a riddle. So it's the aliveness that somehow you have as a, as a receptivity to see something that's there all the time that you could easily overlook and that can stand out. And that's, you know, when you're taking walks or when I'm, you know, doing courses and things, I hope to get into that mode so that, so that things can begin to show themselves more. I mean, that's the one part. It's kind of like the invitation. That's not quite the right word. It's the when a, some kind of a meeting happens, 
And that's where I would say, well, that's real. I really love plants, right? In that moment, mm-hmm. was, that's where that comes out. So this book, Thinking Like a Plant, in which you convey the Gertian approach and what one can learn from taking that approach and studying plants. But then there's this title that at first is pretty odd, really, as one considers it, Thinking Like a Plant. But then I read the introduction, just the first four paragraphs, which I'll ask you to read in a moment. It all becomes quite clear what you mean and really not only accessible, but intriguing. And so, Craig, this book was written about nine years ago, but you'd already had decades teaching and being with plants. So this didn't just come out of some off-the-cuff excitement. I would imagine this brewed for a while. Were you thinking for many years before you wrote the book that you wanted to write a book like this? Yeah, in a way. You know, something that was then more a book that's really based more on the practice and on what, you know, really plants can reveal, not so much a plant study like I've done with my animal studies, although there's one in there with the milkweed, but more what we can really learn from plants in the way of how do we change the way we see and think, right? That's why thinking like a plant, I could have written thinking like a plant lives, right? So we're trying to think the way a plant lives. So it was, now you know, some people misunderstand the title and say, well, this guy thinks plants think in the way we think, which I don't think is the case. And that's not the reason for that. And it becomes clear, you know, later in the book, that basically I took this title as a modification inspired by Aldo Leopold's little essay, Thinking Like a Mountain, right? which I talk about in the book. And in a way, it's like a dedication to him to name it like this, because I felt like he was really onto something in a germinal form, well, actually quite mature form in his language. I mean, he was an amazing writer. But this perspective is how can we learn from the creatures of the world to be in the world differently than we are, rather than projecting a particular kind of mindset onto the world to gain that flexibility of mind through entering into the qualities of different creatures, in this case, plants, flowering Mm -hmm. plants. Would you read the very first page? This is the introduction. A plant growing up through a crack in a sidewalk is embedded in a world of relations. Its roots grow downward toward the center of the earth. They explore and transform the soil while drinking up water and a fine array of minerals. The shoot and leaves grow in the opposite direction upward into the air and light. The leaves open themselves to these elements and take them in. The plant brings the stream of water and minerals from the soil together with the air and light and in its unassuming way does something miraculous. It creates its own living substance. Living out of this embeddedness in the environment, the plant grows and transforms according to its own inner pattern and yet adjusts itself at all times to what it takes in from the environment. This means that a small and compact dandelion growing up through the crack may be strikingly different from one growing effusively as a weed only a few feet away in a flower bed. Even though as a creature of place, the plant is not mobile in the sense that an animal is, it is dynamic, connected, 
resilient, and in its ever-changing life, always in relation to the world into which it grows. Why can't we be like that? Clearly, we can't put much hope in our physical ability to wander out into the yard, take root, and then grow by using the sun's light and taking in air, water, and a paltry amount of minerals. But we can put hope in our ability to become plant-like thinkers. How might the world look if we, as human beings, were able to think the way a plant grows? Imagine gaining such flexibility of thought that our ideas were no longer rigid, static, and object-like, but grew, transformed, and when necessary, died away. And as with plant form, what if our actions grew out of a context-sensitive relation to the world we inhabit? Isn't that a revolution worth striving for? Craig, those who know you know you as a very gentle soul, and revolution is not a word that we often hear you speak or anything uh, pointing in that direction. Yet in your heart of hearts, here you are, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, very clear. (laughs) Yes, yes, nice. The revolution, your last chapter, the conclusion is a quiet revolution. Mm Mm-hmm where there's the summing up of the book and putting in the context of what you feel, the ground you've covered, why it's necessary and where it might lead. And as I was spending a couple hours with the book this morning in front of the fireplace, realizing we're going to talk for an hour or 90 minutes, something like that. And there's no way we can do justice to the book, but how can we give our listeners who are unfamiliar with the book a feel for it? And those who already appreciate the book, a little more excitement. And so I'm struck with how to do this in an hour or 90 minutes. So I go for a walk around the block. And I realize as you were speaking that I had my own Emerson College experience. Because as I was walking, I came across our neighbor who's 20 months old and is walking everywhere and he's gripping a trash can that's got a handle mid-size in it and that trash can is literally twice as tall as him and he's shaking that handle and he's watching the trash can shake and then he sees me and he stops and he smiles and he's not speaking much yet but he gestures a lot and he gestures and his father says oh he's excited about vacuum cleaners and he wants you to know about vacuum cleaners So I say to this young man, this young being whose name is Emerson, I say, Emerson, I have two kinds of vacuum cleaners, one in my house, but one in my workplace that sucks up water. He smiles big. He'd never pictured that before, a vacuum that could suck up water. We say a couple more niceties and we live on a loop. So I go off in one direction. He goes the other. And I come across them on the other side of the loop. And there's Emerson with the irises that are just popping and they're a deep blue purple. And he's got his face buried in them, smelling them, and he's pulling the leaves out. And his father says, Emerson pointed to the smoke coming out of your chimney as we walked by and he smelled your fire. And now he's immersed in the irises. And I thought, this is Craig's book in a nutshell. These two modes of human encounter. Here's Emerson with the trash can and the shaking and and obsessed with vacuum cleaners, the mechanical that we bring into the world. And then there's Emerson 
immersed in the irises, face buried, inhaling. And then I think about where's Emerson going to go in life? Right now, I don't know that he even distinguishes between the living and the non-living, right? Between the vacuum cleaner and the plant. Probably not. At some point, I hope he's able to make that distinction. And how does he make sense of it? And really, I think that's one way of talking about your book in terms of what you call object thinking and living thinking. Mm -hmm. This mechanical mode of encounter that we as humans have the capacity for. And this organic mode that seems in our age, something that really needs to be brought into a consciously developed skill or is increasingly less likely to happen. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning of the book, I characterize this more mechanical mode of, of thinking that we have in our modern times. And, you know, it's a way of thinking, basically, the way we always posit things as being separate from each other. And then the separate things interact so that, you know, it's a kind of a cause and effect relation of things. And this does that, and that does that, and that does that. That's a particular way of viewing the world. Sometimes we think that's the way the world is, but it's quite easy to reflect upon the fact that in the world there, there is separation, but fundamentally things are connected with each other. A rock lying on the ground that see that I can pick up and say that's an individual rock, it's separate from everything else, is nonetheless embedded in all the gravitational forces or whatever you want to say in that way of the earth. It's connected with the earth. So it has from the very get-go, it's in relation. And one can find more relations than that, of course. So you can start from an, another perspective where you say, okay, at first things may appear in a certain separateness because of the way I'm organized, but I can now shift and say, okay, well, let me though pay attention actually to their relatedness. And this is where the plants are so amazing. If you take a seed, it's a seed by itself. It's no context. It, it's not doing anything. It might just die. It also might sit around for 10 years and still be able to grow into a plant. But in order to do that, it has to come into particular relations. It has to come into a context with water and warmth and soil and light and air. And then something can begin to happen. And it begins to transform. Something's being brought forth in relation to the context, what we call the environment, without which it could not exist. So you can't say it's separate from the environment. It is through the environment that it can develop into itself. And what it is itself is always a relation to this environment. I can't say that the five petals of a rose flower are, I can explain that out of the environment in terms of air or light or moisture or something like that? No, I can't. But that comes into appearance is only through the context in which it is grown. So you have on the one hand, the transformation. And then on the other hand, this embeddedness in context, context change, it changes. So this mode of no longer seeing separateness, this cause, 
that effect, this cause, that effect, very linear. You're looking at weaving relationships that arise and then shift. And then the plant leaves its lower leaves behind when it's getting its upper leaves. It leaves its upper leaves behind when it's getting its petals. It leaves its petals behind when it's developing its fruit. So it's in process. So these characteristics, what if we could think more like that? Meaning, what if we were more attuned to transformation? What if we were more attuned immediately to looking at how something is connected rather than seeing it, first of all, disconnected, and then trying to understand it as an isolated thing and then bring it into relation to others. That's the more mechanical mode, which can be very uh, effective in doing things, creating technologies, no question about it, but it lacks the organic, very simply put. It lacks the organic And that's something, the organic thinking is largely lacking from all of our technologies. It's not, at least it doesn't come to me so clearly to expression. Let's put it that way. In your book, when you talk about what does it mean to characterize an organism, there's something to me that's quite clarifying about the distinction between something that comes into appearance through a mechanical mode and something that comes into appearance through an organic mode. And that, on page 34, the last couple paragraphs there, you talk about that, quoting Kant and then Lewis Mumford. You're welcome to either read that or comment on it, but this quality of organic, I think it's really important. What is the capacity that an organic being has that a mechanical being never exhibits? Yeah, when I quote Mumford, where he says, I'm quoting him now, to preserve wholeness in the midst of constant change, to allow for maximum amount of instability and variability for adventurous effort, pushing beyond immediate needs and stimuli while retaining a sufficiently constant structure and a dynamic pattern of wholeness defines the nature of living organisms as opposed to random samples of molecules. So this characteristic of the organism, on the, in the first place, I mean, it's easiest to see, you know, if we were to construct a plant, we would have to put it together out of parts. How does a seed construct a plant? It's a wholeness that brings forth a membered wholeness and is continually producing new substance and breaking down what it had before, building up new, all in relation to a world that supports that. And so it's not put together one thing after another that then works as a whole, a machine works as a whole. There's no question about it. But it's not growing, it's not transforming. In as much as it transforms, it's because we put in a new part or take out a part or add something on so that it's more efficient, whatever. But that's this more additive mode. And this transformational, And it's easy to say that. The difficulty is is to really vividly 
imagine what that means. Just in terms of substances, new substances are continually being created, broken down, other new substances being created. That's amazing. And that's how the plant develops, right? And it's doing that in a way that's no two things are ever the same because they're always in a different context because they're sensitive to those contexts that they're developing in. And so, you know, any given tree where you can identify it as an oak tree, but every one of its leaves is different from the other. And every year, the, the tree brings forth thousands of new leaves. This is uh, the terminology of Henry Bortoff that I quote in the book. And it, it can be itself differently. It is itself, but it's itself in all these different manifestations. And that is startling capacity. It's a startling capacity. And there's something about you don't know it till you experience it. But as you said, because to picture so vividly a particular plant and its growth process, and then to ask yourself, how, how can it do that? Out my window right now is a California buckeye. And I just look at it and all I do is narrate what I see. And I see this incredible branching pattern. And I'm to the right of my field division, to the right of the trunk, there's these heavy, heavy branches. And there's only two of them. Then to the left, there's a lot of littler ones going out, and yet the tree somehow balances itself. And it's not doing this by, as you said, adding one thing on. It's moving and growing all the time, too slow for me to see in any right. given moment, but yet it's stable. And, and mm -hmm. when I even begin to just think about that, my jaw truly drops yeah. because I can't comprehend its capacity to do that, but I can't deny that it's doing it. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that I think part of the, you know, this wonder that you can have that you just expressed, that I think most biologists, anyone who's a naturalist, anyone who's involved in biology of whole organisms in some form or another, has that kind of wonder. And then there's this other side that gets in, let me try to find out what causes it to do this or that. So that you begin to analyze in great detail, which is what science has gotten incredibly good at, to be able to trace what's going on step by step in, as the uh, conditions in time and space that need to be fulfilled before it can get to a particular form. So that there's more and more detailed knowledge about that process. But if you can then manipulate that, then you feel like you understand it. And that's a bit of, that's where there's a certain illusion, right? That we're, we've gained a lot of manipulative understanding in the sense if we change this, then that changes and we can repeat that. And then we say, okay, then we know what the cause of that is, the cause of this branching pattern. If we manipulate these hormones, then it changes. And that's all fine and good. It's interesting, perhaps, but it's not actually what is often called explanation there is basically just tracing the pathway how it gets there because you can sketch out how it got there to a certain degree doesn't mean you've explained it it just gives you a more not more detailed knowledge of the process i think what I, you're also getting at is that as you said i think appropriately when we want to track a given process and we set the context by 
now focusing on just that aspect of, let's say, a plant, and I intervene in the same way in that, that stated context, in the same way again and again, the plant reliably responds in a given way, mm-hmm. and it's expressing its capacity in response to your manipulation to do whatever it's going to do. Yeah. That is a, and you're saying that is somehow calling that an explanation of uh, a cause of how the plant works is taking everything out of context because the plant in any given moment in its natural environment has hundreds, if not thousands of factors engaging with it. And it's responding all the time, as you said, to be itself differently. It's self-organizing. And all we can do when we intervene is pick one aspect of those hundreds or thousands of ways in which it's being impacted. And we may even impact it in a way that it never actually happens in its native environment. Yeah. And then we call that an understanding of the plant when it seems more accurate to say that through our form of manipulation, we can reliably predict that the plant will behave this way, but it's a behaving plant. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I need to kind of say this to myself every day, one way or another, to keep myself awake because my tendency is to fall into mechanical explanations about just about everything. Yeah. Yeah. And we all have that. And I think, you know, the best way to move beyond that is the as the only way to look at things is just again and again to follow processes and take on the one hand follow developmental processes very vividly in one's imagination also you're looking at them but then you okay this is how this process happened so you're activating your imagination through the phenomena on on the basis of what's going on in front of you, what Goethe called uh, once <laughs> exact sensorial imagination, that practice. So you're kind of honing your own mind to, to live more in transformation and in these, yeah, in these transforming images that the world is always presenting to us. And then you're not trying to explain, you're just trying to participate in the process. And that can become more and more part of you. That's the one thing. And then the other is this element of the context is to say, okay, how does it relate to context? Now, not in sense I want to explain it, but just to say, what else is it? What else is relating to it as and forming? I'm kind of forming a picture of relationships that are never you'll never get there but you can begin in the sense of you've got a complete knowledge and it's not about analyzing it into all the parts it's about just seeing seeing relatedness you know to to perceiving that relatedness um to school that without again calling it explanation out without again saying this causes that but just say these are the relations that are weaving together that i've seen so far that help me help me acknowledge and understand yeah understand the expressiveness of this particular form for example you've used the word imagination and all for our listeners there are other podcasts available that have the title with practice in them and, and this term exact sensorial imagination 
we talk about quite a bit. But just for right now, I think it's important to note that this mode of encounter, just as a mechanic has to be trained to be an effective mechanic and to manipulate the world in a mechanical way, we're learning a skill and we're disciplining our imagination to be very precise. And that's a practice because now I mentioned earlier my California Buckeye, I can close my eyes and try and imagine as precisely as I can that branching pattern. But the objective correlative that confirms or denies the accuracy of my imagination is the actual tree, right? right? And I have to go back and forth. And it is a kind of work. It definitely requires practice. And the skill is being built because I get better at it, not only for this particular tree, but there's a kind of muscle that I'm developing so that when I go work with another living being, I can also imagine increasingly precisely more easily. Yeah. 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 And then one other aspect that's really important in this is if we just think about growth processes, we don't actually see them with our senses happening. Mm -hmm. We see it this way now. We say it that way then. Then a day later, it's that way. And then it's that way. And the only way we can actually begin to get a sense of the growth process is to see now not with our eye our optical eye but with our mind's eye that is a continuous process and again that's an imagination process where we can connect to snapshots something to say okay it's gone from here to there because the plant is continuity but in our perception we have discontinuity right so to begin to be able to participate in the life processes, we need to school that capacity in ourselves of the continuity, the shaping continuity through time in relationship, right? Which is a big task, not easy. When you were, when you were speaking of this, I was also reminded of the section in your book on dialogue. And there's something quite, fascinating because it goes against the cultural norms to say that I could be in dialogue with anyone other than another human. Right. And yet there's something about what we mean by dialogue. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that when you're in dialogue. Well, let's stick with plants. What do you mean? If you become interested in a particular plant, I become interested in a plant, I go out and start observing it. That's my activity. But then the moment I'm actually observing and studying, then the plant is telling me something. Now, it's not asking the time of day or anything like that. It's just saying it's speaking through its form and its colors, its, its geometry, through the morphology of its different parts, it's telling me something. I'm receiving something then. And when I've received that, then I can go back out to the plant and see more, I can see differently than I did before. I've learned something. And now the plant can begin to tell me more. And in that sense dialogic that it's a that's a back and forth and it begins with the recognition on my part involves the recognition on my part that I'm dealing with something that has its own integrity that I need to take seriously 
that I'm there to learn from. And then you could say, well, that's fine, Craig. Good. That's dialogue. But you're getting everything. The plant's not getting anything. Now, maybe that's true. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not true. Mm-hmm. And so that's this question of, well, I can't ask the plant whether it's getting anything. It's not a human being. It's not the, that's not the mode of this dialogue. And say is, and it's a fact whether you like it or not, the plant has now, through the fact that I've engaged with it in this way, it has come to appearance in a human consciousness. And that is a new way for the plant to appear in the world. If someone's paid attention to it, if someone's cared for a plant, and this is, you could say the same thing, you know, if an animal eats a plant, that's a new expression of the plant's that's a transformation of the plant in the world. So the plant has, and this is this is really hard for any uh, normal Western mind to swallow, to say, after one has interacted with the plant, the plant is different, right? And I don't mean, you know, weird vibes. I don't mean any of that stuff. All I mean is it's come to appearance in a different way. The relation between human and plant has changed, right, in that process. So that's the whole thing of really taking participation seriously and not always thinking, oh, we're separate. Oh, I'm out here. The plant's over there. Everything's a one-way street. It's not. That's just an illusion of the intellect. That illusion of the intellect, I think, gets put on notice by the way you just described it. And there's something about maybe to rephrase a little bit so that I am clear in my own mind. One of the ways I heard you say it is the plant is not verbally expressive, but it's certainly sensually expressive in that it's sensual being is changing all the time. And that's what I'm picking up when I'm observing it is all these sensual expressions, the branching, the color, the smell, all the things that I can uh, take in through my senses. Mm-hmm. And I think also when you said about a bird and the plant comes to a different appearance, the bird and the bugs and the atmosphere, all those things, all those other way, all those other forms of engagements with other creatures. But as you're talking, I realize that I can also phrase it, that it's not that we're connected. It's what you keep saying again and again in the book, you use the word connected and relational, but also several times it's also equally fair to say that we evolve through one another. And this is one of the things you mean by participation is that we're, it's not only that we're connected, we come to appearance through literally through one another, which is a little different connotation than connected. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that just, it just shows you, you're kind of in, there's this, yeah, there's this process, this transformative process, evolutionary process that is involved in all knowing, I mean, in, in all inquiry, that's there. And it's just a question of whether we recognize it. And then also, I mean, again, comes back to this element that I feel strongly, this element of respect for the other, you know, to come back to dialogue. Dialogue always has respect for the other. Monologue doesn't need to necessarily. It can but it also can be just, I'm spewing forth and take it or leave it, right? 
And here it's really this kind of sensitivity, you know, this nice phrase from Goethe, a delicate empiricism, the way he, you know, they characterize this approach, that there's something gentle and delicate about it, that you're trying to be sensitive really to the other in this as, yeah, and and not, not manipulative in that sense. I think throughout the book, again and again, sometimes explicitly stated, sometimes just implied, is that this form of relating has within it what naturally unfolds as a gesture of care. One wants to be careful Mm -hmm. once one begins to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, in terms of your quiet revolution, I think that's one major aspect of possible outcome of your quiet revolution. Yeah. In terms of a motivation, as I, you know, said at the beginning, this, you know, when I was younger and this feeling, this separateness, and yet no, somehow having also the feeling there's got to be connection to the world. And through this work over decades now, feeling that, sensing that, realizing it more and more strongly that it is the case, and you know, people see that I think in our courses is that when you really take the time and the care to concern yourself something that you know might not seem like that big a deal, a chicory plant growing on the edge of the road, that on the one hand, there are all these things that are there that you can say, Oh my goodness, how does the plant do that? Or I've never thought that that a plant can do such things, can show such transformations, the way also that the insects come at a particular time of day and all these things, you begin to gain this incredible appreciation for the natural world through just carefully taking the time, not because you want to eat it, not because you think it's a healing plant, not because you want to dig it out for some other reason, but just for its own sake, that that has a transformational quality to it that does foster this sense there's a lot in the world that could command my respect (laughs) if I really am attentive. Craig? Yes. We're going to end it now because I don't think we're going to get any better than that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Nature Institute. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes in our podcast or just learn more about our work, you'll find us at natureinstitute.org. Thank you for listening.